When Roosevelt Montas arrived in the United States for the first time, he was 12 years old. In his current book, Rescuing Socrates, he writes that when he landed at JFK Airport in New York, that he had, quote, a head full of lice and a belly full of tropical parasites. In many respects, the Dominican Republic native admits he was an unlikely candidate for the Ivy League. However, Montas eventually earned a Ph.D. in English from Columbia University. He went on to run the Columbia Core Curriculum from 2008 to 2018. The subtitle of his life story, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. Professor Roosevelt Montas, tell us, when was the first time you came to the United States and from where? I came to the United States in 1985, in May of 1985, just as I was turning 12 years old. I came from the Dominican Republic, um, specifically a small town in the, in the mountains in the south of the island called Cambita Garabito. And why did you come to the United States and where did you land? Landed at JFK International Airport um, and, and lived in Queens. And um, why did I come to the United States? Essentially because I had a chance to. Um, in the Dominican Republic, but I think in much of the, third, in, of the third world, if you have a chance to come to the United States, then you do. That's, that is reason enough. And uh, in my case, my mother had come a few years earlier on a green card, which gave her the... Um, the opportunity to petition for us, her children, myself and my older brother, which she did immediately upon arrival. So it was only um, uh, a little over two years after she arrived that she brought myself 12 and my older brother 17 to along with her. How did she get a green card? Her brother um, had come to the to the U.S. on a on a worker visa back in the 60s and eventually married uh, an American woman and became a U.S. citizen. Um, And as a U.S. citizen, he could then sponsor siblings for visas. So he sponsored my mother and my aunt and an uncle. Um, So it is, you know, all, all this stems out of the 1965 Family Reunification Act, which um, allows citizens and permanent residents to sponsor close relatives from uh, foreign countries to come on on, uh, on on green cards. When you arrived, how much English could you speak? Zero. I, um, I was uh, 12 and therefore spoke, you know, grown-up Spanish or pretty much grown-up Spanish, but no English at all. And if your mother had been here for a couple of years and you were in Dominican Republic, what were the circumstances of your time in the Dominican Republic uh, when she was here? I lived with mainly my grandmother. Uh, my father and mother divorced when I was five. Now, it's a small town, so it was just, you know, a couple of a couple of blocks away. But I lived, my mother left me in the charge of my grandmother. Um, so I lived, lived with my grandmother, but, you know, with with access to both my father and also kind of the broader family networks in the town. Explain the politics of your father. Uh, and he is he living in the Dominican Republic now? Is he still alive? 
My father is still alive and lives in the Dominican Republic, and he kind of cut his his teeth politically in resisting the kind of right-wing, strongman government of Joaquin Balaguer. Uh, Joaquin Balaguer was um, had been in the government of the kind of longtime dictator of the Dominican Republic, who was m- murdered in the early 60s. Um, and uh, Joaquin Balaguer came into power after a brief democratic experiment where a socialist, um, democratically elected socialist president, Juan Bosch, was uh, deposed um, in a CIA-backed coup. And uh, Joaquin Balaguer came after him. And my father kind of cut his political teeth in the struggle to restore the deposed socialist president, Juan Bosch. Um, The U.S. invaded, the Marines came in to uh, essentially prevent the restoration of the socialist president um, and oversee the installation of Joaquin Balaguer. So my father, who uh, was part of that struggle, and then was in the political, mostly underground opposition to Joaquin Balaguer. Um, So I grew up under the kind of shadow of political persecution, and and, uh, my father was in jail um, a number of times uh, as a political prisoner, Um, and um, his politics were uh, left-wing, Marxist-armed, um, as you know, part of the several movements in Latin America that were Marxist-inspired armed resistance to um, authoritarian governments. So go back to 1985. You arrived in the United States. Did you have any money in your pocket? No. Um, we, my mother had a, um, actually at the time that we came, she was unemployed, but soon after found work in a minimum wage uh, garment factory. And uh, we had, you know, very, very little means, including, um, so we lived, we, we applied for every sort of public assistance that we could get. Initially, we weren't even eligible for welfare benefits because my mother hadn't lived in the country long enough. Eventually, we were able to get welfare benefits. We received food stamps from the beginning, um, eventually also housing assistance. So we... Um, uh, we're, we're in some way a stereotypical poor immigrant family who uh, had a very hard time at the beginning, and it took some time for us to um, kind of stabilize ourselves. And, and a big part of that was both of my mother's children, myself and my brother, um, becoming old enough to get an education and get jobs. What's your mother like? Um Wow. What is my mother like? My mother grew up in the mountains, really in the mountains. When she moved to our rural town, that was like coming to the city for her from, from, from deep in the mountains. Um, she has um, some high school education, but not, um, n- not a lot. Um, doesn't speak English. Um, it's, but she is um, the most love-filled person that I've ever known. Um, and I, I always ponder about uh, how, even though she could not give me and my brother a lot of resources and a lot of um, guidance and 
a lot of the kind of support that that most parents are able to give their children. Um, she gave us the thing that we most needed, which was unreserved, unconditional love, um, and that 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 did the trick for us. How did you learn English? Mainly at school. Um, I attended the local New York City public school, IS-61 in Queens, in its bilingual program. So I spent two years, seventh and eighth grade, in the, the bilingual program, which has a strong emphasis on, on English as a second language, um, kind of your, your subjects, math, history, um, science were taught in, in Spanish mainly, kind of with a bilingual emphasis, a lot of uh, translation, but then intensive ESL, intensive English as a second language. Um, so after two years of that, I was able to move into um, mainstream, as they called it, which is uh, with English as the main language of instruction when I went to, into ninth grade in high school. When did you start thinking in English? It's very hard to say because thinking feels linguistic, but it's often not explicitly linguistic. Um, one often um, doesn't kind of use explicit language labels. Um, so, so it's hard to say. I think one probably a better indicator is dreaming. And I started dreaming um, in a kind of con context-sensitive way very early on from, in my learning English. That is, in, in situations where I was interacting with people who spoke English, that's what I would speak. And, and in situations where I was interacting with Spanish speakers, that's what I would speak. Who was your first mentor? I don't think I've ever been asked that. Um, and I've never, I've never thought of this of this teacher as a mentor, but but I, I think I would uh, identify her as my first mentor. She was my homeroom teacher and my science teacher that first year when I when I came into the seventh grade and was maybe the most difficult year of my life. Just uprooted from my friends and most of my family, my language, my culture, just my sense of of, of place in the world. Um, and she. Um, was a scientist, a biology teacher, who um, I think recognized just how disoriented I was and, and gave me special attention. And we had a, it was a, it was kind of an awakening for me where I, I uh, with science and, and for for many years in my life, I thought that I would be a biologist just because the um, uh, her teaching of science was so uh, fascinating and interesting to me, but also just her personal attention to me. And again, you know, she, she, I wouldn't, I've never identified her as a mentor before, but, but thinking back, I think that very first, um, school, uh, relationship, that very first teacher that, that seemed to take a special interest in me, um, I think counts as a mentor for me. What was her name? Virginia Woolley, W-O-O-L-L-E-Y. By the way, today, you're, are you married? I am. I am married, have uh, a toddler son and a two-month-old daughter. The book focuses on, and I want your pronunciation, of how, what's the last name of Saint? <laughs> Augustine, although it is 
also often pronounced Augustine. And I myself switch between those two in 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 uh, ways. I, I don't I don't know a pattern in in unpredictable ways. Um, but Augustine, I think, is what I often end up saying most. The reason I ask is I got online and listened to two different people talk about it, including the president. I think it was Villanova, and he was it was Augustinian, Augustine, anything yeah. but Augustine. Okay, Freud, Socrates, and Gandhi. We'll come back to those folks, but I want to go back to the first time you saw the pile of books and explain it. I was by this time a sophomore in high school. And after having lived a few years um, in a in a relative's house in a basement room, my brother and I, um, my mother had uh, gotten together, not actually married, gotten together with a with a man and, and lived in the Bronx. And uh, we eventually were able to reunite. We rented an apartment in Queens when I was a sophomore in high school. And our next door neighbors one evening threw away a bunch of books you know, I guess they were just clearing their bookshelves or something but a big pile of books um, and I went over started browsing the books uh, my English was still kind of shaky I you know didn't recognize hardly any of the of the writers or, or any of the books but there were a couple of, of volumes from a collection called the Harvard Classics Harvard Universal Classics. She's a beautifully bound, gilded, edged uh, edition of the classics. Um, and I grew up two of those um, because they were beautiful and because I did recognize the names on the spine. One was had the name Plato on it, and the other one had the name Shakespeare on it. And I brought those home with me and began to read the, the first of them, the Plato volume. And that turned out to be a collection of the dialogues that record the last days of Socrates, including the Apology of Socrates. And even though I, got, I had a halting English, halting uh, command of English, I had enough to really be um, moved and gripped by the character that I met there, Socrates. Um, and uh, that book also, you know, I took it to school. I was reading it in the hallway one morning. And the teacher walked by, saw me reading this. As it turns out, a teacher who would become a lifelong mentor and friend uh, who had himself been an immigrant from, from Greece, had a, a fairly classical education at Princeton. And um, my reading this caught his attention. And, and, and working through that book became the occasion for a very important mentorship in my life. I assume you're talking about Mr. Philippides? I am, John Philippides. Tell us about him. Um, John, uh, I, I still to this day call him Mr. Philippides, was a social, social studies teacher. He has a, a, had a career in, in business. He had um, gone to Princeton, served in the Army for a while, um, then went to business school and had a career in, in, in real estate. And at some point, retired from that and became a public school teacher. Um, he someone who is driven by a passion for teaching and for having an impact in young people's lives. Um, and that's why he um, became a public school teacher in a regular public school in Queens. Um, and... Uh, 
himself had emigrated from Greece after the Second World War and the kind of chaos in in Greece, um, lived in a farm in New Jersey in a uh, uh, acquaintance kind of a, he was kind of an ad- adopted in, into a, a farm family in in uh, uh, Pennsylvania and uh, ended up going to Princeton and um, again uh, someone who for all all of those reasons and probably some that I don't even know, um, saw something in me that he identified with and um, which he then dedicated a lot of time and energy to, to cultivating. And um, that, that relationship really made all the difference in my life. Was there a time when you decided that you wanted a PhD in English? It, there was, and it was very late in college. And the, the main motivation for um, going on to graduate school was that I didn't feel I had been educated enough. Um, the first years of college, landing from that public school in Queens, from uh, poor, um, in some ways culturally deprived, at least at least with the sense of high American culture, elite, literate. Um, politically engaged American culture, deprived in that sense of, of of that exposure. Landing at Columbia as a freshman was uh, utterly bewildering. It's really comparable to coming from the Dominican Republic six years earlier. Um, and I felt that when I was a senior in college, I was just kind of getting my feet under me. I was just kind of um, getting... Uh, learning how to be a student, learning to um, uh, how to take advantage and and thrive in the world where I had landed. So graduation was a tragedy, and I was not ready to stop going to school. I went to my um, college counselor, my my academic advisor, and asked about petitioning to stay a fifth year at Columbia. Was told no. You're not. We're not going to fund another year of financial aid so that you can complete a second major in philosophy. Um, so then I decided to apply to graduate school, and I considered applying to philosophy and to English, and ultimately applied to English, uh, and, and got a PhD in English because my basic sense was that I wanted to keep reading and writing. It was not that I had developed a, a particular research interest in some literary question or in some body of um, English language literature, it was a fairly indiscriminate hunger to keep reading and keep writing. Um, and English really gave me the most flexibility, the widest scope for me to continue to figure out what I was interested in, continue to figure out kind of the broad world of ideas that I had been introduced to in college. So that's how I ended up um, in an English PhD program. What's the Higher Education Opportunity Program? The Higher Education Opportunity Program is a is a, a New York State um, scheme to open opportunities for students who are socioeconomically and academically disadvantaged. So essentially, it's a state higher education financial aid program for poor and educationally underprivileged students. 
Um, that program provides uh, financial aid. It provides additional um, advising resources. It provides uh, cash stipend to buy books. Um, and it was through that program that I was accepted to Columbia. How much of your education from um, Columbia freshman year on did you have to pay for? And have you ever totaled up the entire cost of you getting a Ph.D.? Um, very little. Um, one of the quirks and peculiarities of American higher education system is that the most elite schools, which often also means the wealthiest schools, the schools with the biggest endowments, and uh, also have the most generous financial aid, so that um, even though the sticker price of those you know, elite liberal arts colleges or Ivy League universities is very high, if you're a poor student, there's actually much more generous financial aid than in you know, state schools or less, um, uh, less wealthy schools. So um, for college, was it essentially um, was free, essentially. Uh, I mean, I might have taken a small lo loan of a few thousand dollars to help with living, living expenses. Um, but I graduated from college essentially with no debt. Um, for my master's program, I did pay for that out of pocket, which meant entirely on loan. So my master's in English at Columbia um, was on, on student loans, so I took, I took some 30-odd-thousand dollars on, on student loans for that. After the master's, which was a one-year program, the Ph.D. came with a fellowship, uh, which is a standard thing at uh, in in humanities Ph.D. programs, for the most part, will have a, um, uh, a fellowship attached to it so that the student, in exchange for teaching assistance and research assistance of the faculty, essentially um, gets a tuition waiver and usually a cash stipend. So all in all, one of the great fortunes of my life is that I have gotten one of, one of the really best educations one can buy in the world, um, but it has cost me um, comparatively little financially. You went on, of course, and we can, we'll talk more about this, to be a professor and to teach students at Columbia and work with high school kids and all about uh, the great books and a liberal education. At what point in your life did you feel comfortable knowing that you were smart enough to deal with all this, and at what point did others see that in you? You know, perhaps because of my upbringing, um, where I was kind of aware of the broader world and of myself or my dad as a political agent, as somebody who had something to say that mattered in the world, as somebody who on the basis of ideas and their perception of what was right would take action to change the world around them. I, I kind of drew that lesson as a child. I kind of internalized that what I had to say and what I thought mattered in the world. Um, so I really never had any question about my own intelligence and my own capacity to um, compete and perform in even a even a place, even a place like Columbia or an Ivy League institution, I never really had doubt in my own um, standing. Um, 
I was certainly aware of my linguistic deficiencies, of my educational deficiencies, but all of that um, felt to me like challenges that I could overcome with if I if I if I applied myself, if I wanted to, if I if I had the motivation, which which I did. Um, when did other people start recognizing that? I think it's a much more complicated story. There were always people who I felt saw me, like John Philippides or uh, some professors in college who somehow were able to see past the accumulated deficiencies that I was coming in with and see something uh, behind that that indicated potential, that indicated uh, my signal, my capacity to to learn and, and compete and, and, and really be equal to intellectually, to even my better educated peers. Um, so that's been gradual. I think as, 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 as I advanced in my education as an undergraduate in graduate school, uh, the marks of those, uh, what one might call it, formal, educa- formal education deficiencies uh, became more and more attenuated, less and less visible. Um, so that as I as I moved along in graduate school, um, it wouldn't. I don't think it would have occurred to anybody to to think of me as as uh, somehow not not being up to up to speed or up to um, up to standard in my in my in the context of my peers. Your book is about um, your life and also. Some very uh, well-known intellectuals, as we said, St. Augustine, St. Augustine, uh, Sigmund Freud, Socrates, and Mahatma Gandhi. But I have to say the most down-to-earth thing that I read in your book, and I want you to reflect on it, is this is your quote. Reading Aristotle can feel like chewing on cardboard. Indeed. And I, I, I warn my students about that before we read Aristotle, which in, in the class that I teach, we read after Plato. See, Plato is a literary artist. Um, you read Plato's dialogues, particularly his, his early dialogues, and there's a extraordinary artistry. They are beautiful. Socrates is a compelling character. His uh, dialogues are structured and staged in such a way as to be uh, engaging and to kind of open up world of ideas in 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 a in a intellectually uh, satisfying way. Aristotle's writings are nothing of the sort, um, in part because many of the works of Aristotle, as they have come down to us, are really lecture notes. They are really um, kind of abstract, schematic outlines of the arguments and discussions that one presumes constituted the substance of Aristotle's teachings. Um, so when you read them, you are, you are, you are you know, the, probably the two most widely read of Aristotle's extraordinary corpus is, uh, are the, the politics and the ethics. Um, and both of those books don't, do really feel like, like lecture notes. They, uh, they're dry, argumentative disquisitions there is no plot. There isn't even, in many cases, a detailed argument um, to establish a point. Um, so it can be very, very tough going. And if you come to Aristotle, having developed a taste for philosophy with Plato, you are likely to be really disappointed, as I was when I encountered Aristotle um, in college. So when I teach now Aristotle, I really warn students that 
you're going to have to read Aristotle with a different set of expectations and in a different way than you read Plato in order to see what is really extraordinarily important and incisive and consequential ideas. You're going to have to put much more effort um, on your, from your end than you do when you read a philosopher like Plato. The four people you concentrate on span 2,418 years in history from 470 B.C. until 1948 when uh, Gandhi was assassinated. But um, when you decided to write this book, why these four? And let me just go through them quickly and give us the uh, the quick uh, reason that you first started with Socrates and why you called your book Rescuing Socrates. In part because that kind of scene where I picked up a book, Plato's account of Socrates' last days from a garbage pile. Um, but also one of those dialogues there is of a failed attempt to rescue Socrates from the death sentence that awaits him when he's lying in jail waiting for his execution. There's an attempt to uh, whisk him away, which he refuses to participate in. Um, and then the, a, third, a, third le a third level has to do with my argument in the book that these books are worth reading and that these books ought to occupy a central place in the undergraduate curriculum. Um, in a way, we need to rescue a tradition of, uh, of philosophical, ethical, great books learning in our universities. So they're, they're, it's a kind of layered, um, uh, a, a title that invokes a layered meanings having to do with rescuing Socrates. St. Augustine. Why did you pick St. Augustine for your book? First read St. Augustine as a, as a freshman in college. At a time when I was struggling with questions of faith, I was struggling with my own place in the world of how to understand my own education, my own uh, being at, uh, at, a, at an Ivy League institution. And St. Augustine's Confessions is all about introspection. It's all about a man trying to figure out his relationship with the most profound questions of human existence. Uh, which he does through his relationship with religion, Christianity. So Augustine was illuminating in a very profound way for me as a freshman, um, especially because I myself was dealing with, with questions of faith. By the way, where did you end up with faith today? Um, not not a f uh, follower of any faith. I am, um, I would say a person who is spiritually alert and interested and curious and live my life in a way that I think people around me would describe as spiritual. Uh, that is a various, I practice meditation, have a very deep interest in Buddhism, uh, but it is, it is a, it's a non-theistic spirituality. I would say that's where I have ended up uh, with faith. When was the last time you belonged to a church? Um, while in college, I uh, kind of the, the lingering association that I had begun in high school lasted into college. What what church? It was a uh, evangelical Protestant Christian church. And was there a, a philosopher, uh, an intellectual, uh, who convinced you that uh, you were no longer a believer? No, that happened gradually. Um, there wasn't a, a 
kind of a, a revelatory, a, a, an anti-conversion or a decisive break. It was the accumulation of, first of all, kind of rational evidence against the um, kind of simplistic evangelical faith that I had known. I mean, not all evangelical faith is simplistic and not rationally supportive in the way that supported, supportable in the way that my particular brand was. Um, but it was the slow accumulation of uh, the weight of, of rational inquiry that destroyed that or made that form of faith uh, untenable, but not a decisive, not, not a one single thinker or teacher or influence. Socrates, by the way, lived to be 71, St. Augustine, St. Augustine, 75. And then the third person in your book, uh, Freud, lived to be 83. He was the oldest of the four. Why did you pick Freud to focus on in the the, uh, book? With all four authors, they have had both a personal impact on me that in some sense is idiosyncratic. In some sense, it has to do with my particular history, my particular background, when I encountered them the circumstances under which I encounter them. So all of them have this kind of idiosyncratic importance in my life. But all of them are also thinkers of major cultural and historical import. And one of the things that unites them is their commitment to self-knowledge, their commitment to explore the nature of their own human experience. Freud, of course, um, did that in a systematic science-oriented clinical practice. Um, So Freud's um, interest in understanding the inner workings of the human mind um, are are important for everybody. They were especially important for me um, in how I encountered Freud because I did, I encountered Freud both in the classroom as a kind of intellectual uh, inquiry and and, uh, as as a thinker. Also, I encountered Freud in the therapist's couch. I, I underwent a six-year psychoanalysis while I was in, in graduate school that really brought a kind of order or a psychic integration of aspects of my life that up until that point kind of lived as islands um, in, 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 in a kind of fractured sense of self that achieved some degree of synthesis and unity under the, the, in the process of this methodology of self-inquiry that we call psychoanalysis and that Freud institutionalized. What years were those six years? What, what, at what time in your life? So that was from... Uh, there's a, a little bit of an element of guess here, but I'm going to say that it was from probably 2002 to 2008. What did Certainly it... it was 2008 was the end date, so working backwards, I... Some, sometime in 2002. So what did it mean? Um, how, who, who did, you don't have to name names on it, but who did you go to uh, for psychoanalysis and how many days a week, how many hours a week did you, uh, were you involved with that? So I, I first went into psychotherapy. So kind of talking sort of inside baseball industry talk, um, therapy is usually thought of as a mode of, of, talk treatment uh, that, that is built around a one session a week, usually uh, 50 or 45 minute session with a therapist, a psychiatrist or a psychologist a week. Psychoanalysis 
is a more intensive form of that that involves four or five sessions a week, so almost daily sessions. And uh, it has a particular pedigree associated with Freud. So usually psychoanalysis is, is a much more Freudian approach to um, talk therapy than, than, than psychotherapy. I first uh, went into it um, with my little brother, my little brother who was born from my mother's um, uh, partnership with, with the, this, this, this man who lived in the Bronx at the, at the time that my brother and I lived on our own. Um, when we moved back together sophomore year of, of high school, she came along with two-year-old Ray. I became very, very close to Ray. Um, and when Ray was in middle school, he was having really very hard time in school. And uh, school psychologists suggested suggested that we seek therapy. Ray didn't want to do that. I convinced him that we would that maybe we could try it together. Um, and if he didn't like it, he could drop out after a few sessions, which he did. Uh, but I stayed um, in therapy. We we sought therapy at a psychoanalytic institute in the Upper West Side of Manhattan called the William Allenson White Institute. One of the characteristics or peculiarities about the White Institute is that they assess fees of patients on a sliding scale. That is, as a they are income sensitive. Now, me being a poor graduate student, uh, it meant that it was a very very reduced fee. Um, so I started see, seeing a, a therapist who was in 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 training as a psychoanalyst is a particular, very intensive sort of training that goes into uh, becoming a psychoanalyst as opposed to just a therapist. He was undergoing that training and part of the training involved um, taking up a certain number of, of, of patients. And so he invited me. He thought I was a, would be a good candidate to undergo this intensive form of therapy, psychoanalysis, seeing him four times a week. Um, he arranged his fee so that I wouldn't be paying any more than I was paying when I was just seeing him once a week, which was already a dramatically reduced fee. And, and when that, I saw an opportunity there, I was in graduate school. I had the flexibility to be able to dedicate that time, that kind of time, um, into, into, uh, psychoanalysis. So I saw really an opportunity to deepen and sort out aspects of my life and my own kind of development. So I signed on, and um, it, we, we we did that intensive form of therapy for six years. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Um, it is a. Uh, I can't overestimate the power of a sustained, methodical, systematic investigation of yourself, uh, reflection, and um, analysis. With a, a trained um, individual, somebody who um, whose job is to facilitate that self-exploration and self-clarification, uh, it can be extraordinary. It can it can really transform a person's life and a person's sense of self. So it was absolutely worth it, and and I only wish every person had an opportunity to do that. It doesn't need to be, and in fact, I think it is most valuable when it is not in, in, in response to a crisis, when it is not a, um, an intervention to um, uh, address a crippling problem. But I think it is most effective and most, um, uh, or at least it, it, it has the greatest potential 
um, for transformation when it's done simply out of an, an effort to understand oneself and explore oneself. The fourth, fourth person in, in your book you focus on is uh, Gandhi. And as I said earlier, was assassinated in 1948, was an atheist. What did you learn from him and why did you decide to put him in the book? And is he often taught in Colombia and the other core curriculum courses? Since 2012, he has been introduced into the common required list of books that Columbia undergraduates read. Um, I started teaching him shortly before then and, and was part of the impetus, uh, me and other faculty members, to include him in the common, common reading list. Gandhi is a really unique figure, not just in the 20th century, but I think, I think in history. Um, Gandhi is driven by a deep and all-consuming commitment to a kind of moral perfection. Gandhi says he wants to see God face-to-face -face in this life. And he pursues that project with such ferocity and dedication through traditional spiritual Hindu practices, nonviolence, vegetarianism, poverty, celibacy. Um, and this quest for spiritual self-fulfillment brings him into conflict with unjust social structures, first in South Africa and then in India, so that in working out his own spiritual salvation, he gets caught up in a mass movement to oppose very fragrant forms of injustice. Um, and eventually this coalesces into an independence movement in in uh, um, in India, I I often think that if Gandhi had lived three or four hundred years earlier, and we just heard the stories about this man, we wouldn't believe it. We would think that what is reported of him was you know kind of hero worship, hagiography. But Gandhi's life is one of the best documented in in history. Um, we can see the kind of life that he lived, and it's really a kind of limit case, a kind of. Uh, if one if one is interested in the possibilities of human achievement through discipline and will and and, and a hunger for spiritual fulfillment, then Gandhi is a place is a place to look. Um, to me, his engagement with questions of truth, justice, self knowledge, self purification were the kind of fundamental human questions that those other thinkers grappled with. And in my own kind of intellectual encounter with Gandhi was profoundly meaningful to me. You called him an, an atheist uh, a moment ago. Gandhi would deny that position. He would, he would think of himself as absolutely devoted to, to God and to, and to uh, spiritual fulfillment. Although, as he came to say, his God was truth. He uh, used to say, God is truth. And then at some point he switched that formula and began to say truth is God. His ultimate quest was for a realization of truth. Why were you named Roosevelt? I was named after my father, who was born in the Dominican Republic, obviously, in 1943. He, uh, my, my grandmother was a fan of Franklin Roosevelt, who was at that moment, of course, fighting 
uh, Nazism and, and uh, very much um, uh, engaged in a, in a big, big kind of world historical struggle. And my grandmother was a, was a fan of his and uh, insisted over my grandfather's objection to name, to name my father Roosevelt. And uh, he, he passed it on to me. What do you think of that name? Um, as a child, I loved being named after my father, and and that name only had a I only had a vague sense that there was some American figure associated with that name, but I really had no sense of uh, that name except that was my father's name, which I loved. When I came to the United States um, at first and began to uh, change the set of dominant associations of that name and, and everything that that name means in American culture. At first it was, uh, I didn't like it at first. I did not like being named after an American politician. Uh, gradually, as I began to learn American history and American politics, I became, as I am, a huge admirer of Franklin Roosevelt and of the kind of um, New Deal liberalism that he represents. Um, so I now feel quite proud to be associated in name with Franklin Roosevelt. For a lot of years, you were the director of Columbia's Center for the Core Curriculum. Obviously, that dovetails with the subtitle of your book, How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. What is the Center for Core Curriculum? It's the administrative unit that organizes the so-called Columbia Core Curriculum, which consists of uh, five courses that are required of all undergraduates at Columbia College. Um, these courses are, um, four of them are humanities courses and one is a science course. The science course is a recent, meaning in the last 20 years. The other courses go back 80, 100 years. And they um, are all organized around the notion of great works in the Western tradition. So every freshman at Columbia, every first-year student, freshman and freshwomen, take, takes a year-long sort of great books course. Every week you read, beginning with Homer's Iliad, followed by the Odyssey, some very canonical, important work in the history of Western literary expression. As a sophomore, you do a similar course that looks at political, ethical, social thought, beginning with Plato coming up to the 20th century. And again, it's a common curriculum, so every undergraduate is going through these courses at the same time, reading the, the same books roughly at the same time. Then beyond those two year-long courses, a literature course as a first year, a philosophy, social thought course as a sophomore, there are two other humanities courses that are one semester long. One of them is an art course where you study, roughly speaking, masterpieces of Western art. And the, the second one semester course is music, where again, Roughly speaking, you study masterpieces of Western music. You say in your book that there's an erosion of support for the Columbia core curriculum directly related to the rise of research universities. Explain. The erosion is um, broader than the Columbia core. It puts Columbia, the Columbia core uh, under particular pressures, but it has held up pretty well. In much of the rest of the country, however, that idea and that type of program, which used to be very common, and dominant has been eroded and, and, and many places just crumbled. Um, the rights of the research university, which is something that happens in the 19th century, reorganizes higher education 
around a kind of scientific model of investigation where you pose questions, you investigate empirically, you learn new things. The next generation builds and improves upon that knowledge. And that's essentially the, the, the evidence, re, repeatability, um, verifiability. It's essentially the scientific paradigm of learning. That same paradigm has been applied to the humanities and social science disciplines so that in the humanities today, there is a kind of presumption that as a, as a professor, as a researcher, as a, as a professor, you are a researcher. You investigate, you study, you write, you uh, add to the, to the old knowledge. And that has meant a kind of professionalization and specialization in the humanities that has moved beyond the fundamental questions that animate humanist learning, which are not questions that are susceptible to scientific investigation and, and, and scientific demonstrability. The meaning of love, the nature of political power, uh, the, the foundations of justice, what is good, what is beautiful, what is a life worth living. These are not questions that can be resolved by the accumulation of research and evidence. But that is the, the, what, what dominates the academic profession. So it has meant in the long run an erosion of the kind of broad-based, non-disciplinary, humanistic study that the core curriculum represents. Uh, because today, as an as a academic humanist, your coin, your professional status really has to do with specialized research rather than with engagement with this kind of perennial questions in a non-disciplinary, non-specialized way. You say that today's academic criticism bends toward moral reprimand. Indeed. Um, there, there is, uh, and, and, and here I speak primarily of the humanities and the social sciences. Um, a, a, a kind of revision of received truths, received um, uh, conventions, received canons, received traditions, to find in them the roots of social injustice, the roots of oppression, exclusion, exploitation, marginalization of certain groups of people, the biggest one being women, but also minorities, also the poor of every sort. So this approach to looking at the past as a way of unearthing the roots of social injustice has been really a dominant convention. But it does mean that when you uh, perform a critique or a reading of a text, there is a kind of effort to uncover uh, moral failings, moral um, blind spots um, in it. So uh, it, it, has, it has come to, I think, kill the kind of work that many humanists do, where they are, where, where you write in a way that is super guarded against any possible um, accusation of, you know, whether it be racism or imperialism or sexism, you always have to be very, very guarded because your critics are going to be looking for ways to unmask you as actually a racist or imperialist or sexist scholar. If a parent came to you and said, I, uh, I'd love to have my daughter or son uh, go to Columbia, but I'm worried that they're not going to get a balanced view of the world 
what would you say to them? I would say Colombia is one of the better places to send your child. Um, I would say that the concern is absolutely valid. Um, there is, I think, too much of an ideological monoculture in universities. That is, um, there isn't, I think, sufficient sufficient diversity of viewpoints um, in, in the university. So I think it is a, le- a legitimate concern that a parent would have. But I would say that a school that pays, like Columbia does, serious attention to the traditions that have produced the modern world, the textual, artistic, philosophical traditions, is a, a much better uh, insurance against a facile kind of ideological indoctrination that some college educations indeed deliver. I get a sense in reading your book um, that uh, there is an effort on your part and others to try to uh, convince people around the United States in academia to get back to uh, the core curriculum. Uh, And I must say I was surprised, I didn't know that when I started reading your book, that my own alma mater has a program. I'm not surprised about the program. I'm surprised you wrote about it called the Cornerstone Integrated Liberal Arts Program at Purdue University. Why did that get your attention, and why do you think that matters? It does because uh, part of the uh, erosion, uh, dilution of text-based liberal arts study in university in universities has uh, come about because students' general education requirements, right? So in the United States, the bachelor's degree typically will have somewhere between 20 and 30% of courses be so-called general education courses, that is, courses that are not related to the major. Um, Courses that are in literature, in writing, in science, that are deemed to be the general knowledge base that every student, regardless of their professional aspirations, ought to have. That lane, general education in the curriculum, used to be the lane where students encountered these these textual traditions that made the modern world. In the contemporary university, most of those general education courses have become disciplinary courses, where you take humanities courses, but you are, for the most part, learning the particular specialty and particular Um, specialized bodies of knowledge that your faculty member has. The idea of general education has largely been lost through general education in in American higher education. The Purdue program, which is organized around the non-disciplinary study of what they call transformative texts. Uh, And it's this kind of very elegant formula where faculty members and students who are interested in this more, you might call it traditional, uh, way of doing liberal arts, can come to teach if you're a faculty member or a student to fulfill your general education requirement and really have a different kind of intellectual experience than this fragmented, non-incoherent, really, approach to general education. So what has happened at Purdue, and now at many other schools that have replicated this model, is that students have actually flocked to these courses. Even though these courses are more traditional, they're more rigorous, they're not kind of the, late, the sexiest, latest topic in, in cultural studies or in, in contemporary culture, um, 
they actually have proved to be extraordinarily attractive and compelling to students. So the Purdue program innovated a model that can be adapted within the existing institutional structures of many, many schools in the United States. So um, it caught my attention because it's adaptability and, and just how innovative it is in restoring the opportunity to students to have this kind of serious liberal arts education. We started this conversation talking about the pile of books that were outside of your residence. Uh, when you, how old were you? You were a sophomore at that time? I can't remember. I was a sophomore, so I, yeah. I must have been uh, 16, 13, uh, 15, 16. And are you still teaching in the classroom? I, do you mean as opposed to online? I mean, right now, are you, you uh, teaching any of these I, core curriculum courses? I am. This semester, I happen to be on parental leave because I have a two-month-old daughter that is uh, the, the, the main uh, attraction in my life. Um, but I will return to the classroom in a few weeks in January. The reason, um, I, and, mm-hmm. the reason I was asking is I wonder if you have ever run into another student like that has had the same kind of an experience you had by just happening on Plato and Shakespeare. You know, that probably not with that specificity, um, but I have both run into students who have had transformative experience with classical texts, even very young, like as young as, as, I, as I was in high school. Much more common, I have encountered that in among Columbia students, students who come to Columbia um, thinking of their education as a way to kind of get a leg up in the professional world, as a way to network, as a way to be in New York. Um, and discovering in these core classes a whole horizon of kind of the life of the mind and being really reoriented, sometimes professionally, sometimes just in the way that they live their lives, in the way that their mind works. I see that um, a lot. And, and if, you, you know, if you happen to find yourself among a group of Columbia alumni, whether they're from the same generation or not, it won't be long before it comes up in conversation how transformative this experience was of reading and discussing these books uh, with, with, with other students and with faculty members. Our guest's book is called Rescuing Socrates. As we said earlier, the subtitle is How the Great Books Changed My Life and Why They Matter for a New Generation. And we thank you, Roosevelt Montas, for joining us today. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.